your student radio station on 1251 AM. This is your Raw. Hello, welcome back. You are watching Insight, the premier news show here on Raw 1251 AM. I am your head of news, Edith McCungu. Insight is here to give Warwick students a voice on the biggest stories of the, of the week, whether local or international. Um, this week, we're discussing whether or not the new measures taken out against students are overly harsh, such as what we see in Manchester, where it seems that security was forcing students to stay in their accommodation, or in Scotland, where students have been banned from going to pubs and the potential threat of students to go home for Christmas. I'll be discussing Donald Trump's tax bill. Donald Trump um, essentially has only paid $750 in his tax bill for the last 15 years. Um, we'll be discussing what, how this is going to impact the 2020 election. And also, we're going to be discussing the Supreme Court battle. Obviously, um, very sadly, Ruth Ginsburg, Supreme Court justice and feminist icon, died last week. And now Donald Trump has nominated someone to replace her. Is he allowed to do this? Is this the gentleman of the election so close? It's up to us to decide. But at first, I want to introduce my wonderful, wonderful panel starting with Noah. Hello there Enoch, I'm Noah, um, he, him. Um, I was on the show last week and it was a busy news week and it appears to be no different today. It's just news every single day. Some of it, some of it good but most of it just quite frightening. Where everything, it's, there's too much on everything all the time. I know, it's, just, it's just an overload and if I look at The Guardian or the BBC it's just article after article. Even when I was, I think one of the major shows of this of today was actually forced out because Trump's story broke last night. I just need to shove it in to replace I know, it. I know, I saw it overnight. I I thought, oh god, we're going to be talking about that today. Yeah. Um, then, of course, we have head of training here at Raw, Josh Gray. Hey, I'm Josh. Uh, pronouns are he, him, and yeah, just like Noah said, just a lot of news to get through, really. Yeah. Um, so, Josh, what's training going to look like this year at Raw? Then, obviously. Sorry, you can't. Can you repeat that? Sorry. What's training going to look like this year at Raw? As your how head of training, maybe you could enlighten our fresher listeners what what they can look forward to. Yeah. So, hopefully, um, we are ho- like in the process of trying to organise some sort of uh, video for training in terms of uploading on YouTube, um, and then also hoping to start training a few weeks into term once we fully secure the uh, stu- like studio itself. Yeah. Well, and uh, now we have Neil. Neil, welcome to the stream. Hi. Um, I'm Neil. Pronouns are he, him. Uh, yeah, it's great to be on. Now, Neil, I know for a fact you've used Warwick's test and trace system. Yeah, I have, and uh, probably get into that. Oh, I could get into it now if you want. Um, well, 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 we'll save it a bit later, but just give yeah, us a, a quick highlight. Quick, just a quick highlight. How, how's um, it working? It's actually quite like simple to use. So you just sign up through the website, and they ask you, you know, some relevant information like who have you been with, for the, who do you live with, things like that. And then you can get a uh, free test, but you do have to be on campus. And um, generally, if you you don't say that you have any symptoms they might not accept your application because they're getting a bit overwhelmed as more and more people move in and obviously get coronavirus um so yeah so uh otherwise overall it's pretty good it's um especially if you're near campus it's very convenient and you get your results relatively quick compared to like other testing areas in the rest of the country yeah. um now someone said a very different experience of the, the test and traits uh Ninu, welcome to the stream Hi, I'm uh, Nenu, my pronouns are he slash him. Yeah, I've had a very different experience with uh, the test and trace system. So obviously I've uh, flown very recently. I'm in, I mean, I'm, that's why I'm in my room and not at my desk because my desk is downstairs, which is why I'm in this very professional uh, recording setting. Um, yeah, I've been trying to get a test so I don't have to stay in my room if test comes back negative. But um, the problem is Warwick's test and trace system only applies if you're on 
campus. So when I uh, looked up how the health center is functioning right now, they said, we can get you a test, but you're going to have to go to your local sort of NHS center. And I'm like, then it's not really a home test, is it? And obviously the NHS will only give you a home test if you have symptoms of which I'm currently showing none. So yeah, that's sort of been my experience with so far. Yeah. I'd also like to welcome our program controller here at Raw, Rin Dachiva. Hi, I'm Rin. Uh, my pronouns are she, her. And I'm really glad to be back on this show. I haven't been here in a very long time, so I'm wondering how this one's going to go. But yeah. yeah. Uh, have you have you been on um, the new module Facebook stream Insight, Rin? Or is this your first time? I was on one in term three, but I was not. No, so it was just like once or twice. But oh. I'm very excited for this one. Well, it's good to have you back. And uh, last, but very much not least, we have Cam Hall. Hello, um, I'm Cam Hall. I'm presenter of the Alternative View here on Raw, which is coming back tomorrow, live streaming on Facebook, so make sure you don't miss that at 12 o'clock. And yeah, it's great to be back on Insight. I've loved coming on both when Lucha News and now with Enoch as well. And certainly quite a spicy week, so a lot to discuss, definitely. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, thank you all for coming on. Um, I just want to say, today is that Insight's Freshers Week special. So if you're a fresher out there with any questions you want to ask about university or Raw or coming on Insight, please feel free to comment. Or if you want to comment on anything we're discussing today, please just you know, leave a comment and we'll, we'll get back and we'll respond. Um, but let's start with students suffering under coronavirus regulations. Um, so I think we've all seen the stories. I think, the, as I said earlier, the story from Scotland, the students being banned from pubs. Um, stories in Manchester, students, you know, basically being held prisoner in their own homes. And of course, the idea that government may ban us going home for Christmas. So first, I want to I want to ask people firstly, in the wake of all these stories, do we think universities should just be online type term one? Um, Cam, I'll come to you because I know you have a lot of opinions on this. <laughs> well, ab- absolutely not. And I know I'm not the only student who has said that. I've done it. Hopefully people have seen over the last few weeks. I'm in charge or I'm one of the co-founders with um, Bastian Maxted of the Put Work Students First campaign. And we have very much been, again, the call from the Students Union to move teaching for the online. And also the fact that the SU didn't even consult students beforehand. Um, so far, we've had 438 students from across all different years, all different subjects, all different backgrounds sign the open letter. So firstly, thank you so much for signing. It's really good to have your support for the campaign. But also we've taken a look at other things throughout the weekend as well. For example, the board survey that came out that said two thirds of students for um, in-person seminars. And I think that really gets to the point. And I think it's the fact that students at the moment, having had so much happen over the last few months with lockdown and just having lost so much normality, knowing that the current advice is saying that we can run medically secure, COVID secure seminars, provided we socially didn't. Um, really for the student experience, I think it's essential for students' mental health in particular as well, that they're getting that face-to-face teaching. And again, that's the point we've been saying with the campaign as well. I was also discussing it on um, BBC Radio Coventry Warwickshire this morning as well. We'll be putting the interview that I had with that out later today but it's really getting to the point that students do not there is there are students who are certainly concerned about coronavirus but the vast majority of students want to have in-person teaching and they want to be and at least at the very least they wanted to be consulted on whether they want it want to have it or not i think that's, um, that's also good words to say but i think in the current situation where we're seeing a students put in awful conditions for what looks like increasingly it's going to end up being online teaching anyway surely it's the better choice now to say all right before we could do it in person we really can't everyone go home now before the common gets too out of hand and then we'll do it all in person and then we'll do it all online and we'll refer all your rents. Um, panel, do you, no, I'll come to you. I'll ask you about this. What do you think? Do you think- Yeah, you, no, I disagree. I disagree with you, you know, I don't think it's oh. sustainable to just simply send students home again like we did last term, although Warwick was uh, very lucky to finish its term about a week and a half before the uh, full nationwide coronavirus restrictions came in place. 
I think the real reason we're seeing more of um, why students are suffering is because students are far more likely to be, you know, they're likely to be young and less mature students. And so they'll have access to the internet to complain about their experiences. Whereas with the situation that we saw in care homes, which was a complete disaster, many of their residents wouldn't have had access to the internet to make their make themselves known. It has been truly horrifying um, to see people living on campus, moving away from home for the first time, meeting new people, trying to gain their independence and find out who they are and have that so restricted. And I think one of the main reasons for the difficulties is because of the um, independence of universities from the government. And so while the government might have one policy, universities are meant to be fully independent, you know, financially and academically, as that means their policies and their guidance might differ. Um, but I think it has been really shocking to see people, you know, fully confined in their room, not even allowed to go out and get food. The real basics aren't allowed. And particularly in Scotland under the SNP, their policy of almost banning students from going to pubs and restaurants. Well, if you're banning students, why not ban any young person who might be doing an apprenticeship? They might not be at university. And then this notion that students um, aren't allowed to return home, and this idea even that we might not even be able to go home for Christmas, I think it's unsustainable, unenforceable. And as Cam was saying, just so detrimental for people's mental health, which before the pandemic, mental health was rightly being talked about more. But since the pandemic really struck, we've all been um, told to stay aside. That has really fallen off the agenda. And I think that's that is really shameful. Um, I guess the obvious retort to that then, though, is that surely in the situation we're now seeing, it's overall better for student health now to say, we're sorry, we made a mistake, go home. No, I just don't agree with that. I mean, we are seeing cases rise again, but that was always going to be the case when you took people out of lockdown and they began to mingle with one another, although it seems mingling is now um, illegal. And although we are seeing hospitalizations increase and deaths increase, it is not to the same extent that it was uh, when we were at the height of the pandemic in March or April. You know, students, everyone is obviously vulnerable to coronavirus, but students given our age are far less likely to be severely affected. Many will either be asymptomatic or display mild conditions. And actually at university, um, if we were on a campus, we're actually far less likely to see our parents or grandparents who will be older and actually more vulnerable to the effects of coronavirus. And so there was this um, advice from One Health expert saying actually that, um, you know, pubs and bars on campus should remain open because that might incentivise students to use those rather than using pubs, places of hospitality within the local community where, um, you know, interactions with older people are going to be far more likely. So actually by telling people to go back home, it could be more likely that um, they'd see a grandparent if their grandparent is living with them and therefore the grandparent could suffer the severe effects uh, of the pandemic. Uh, Neil, I want to come to you. As someone who, you know, tested positive for coronavirus and is, oh, sorry, sorry there, Noah. Uh, Neil, I want to come to you. As someone who's tested positive for coronavirus, um, what do you think about this whole situation? Um, I think it's... Well, we're going to see, um, obviously, we're going to see loads more people test positive. And this is only going to further exacerbate, like, the students' frustrations. Because uh, as the science shows, obviously, there will be cases where people do um, severely suffer from this. But on average, younger people tend to be a lot better off um, if, they, if they even... And so um, I feel like a lot of people will have experiences where they might not have felt symptoms as severe and that'll only lead to increased frustration amongst students as well. And, you know, if they feel, oh, it's it, like based on so many people's firsthand experience, it's not really affecting them too much. Why are we trading such like... Um, the entire student experience for this kind of like uh, if the actual illness isn't as severe for them uh, so that might like lead to more cases of people being sort of not irresponsible per se but uh, more so that they gauge their level of personal responsibility based on the personal um, cases that they've seen or have experienced themselves and so that's going to lead to more um, frustration amongst the students as well as like frustration at students which is already happening as I, I feel like students are being blamed quite a bit for the increasing spread even though um, that would not like that might not be the blame might not be rightful against them.
Um, I want to say, Neil, as you, you use Warwick's test and trace system. I want to ask, do you, think it's, do you think it's up to the task of controlling an outbreak, not just on campus, but the Warwick community as a whole? Um, I think depending on it, well, there's testing and then there's also personal responsibility in some cases. So the testing system is there. And however, they, they do have their faults, such as, um, you know, we saw earlier uh, with like not being able to get a home test or anything like that. But I feel like if... On average, people try and follow the general rules and only interact with their households if they um, feel like they have it. The testing system might not be too strained and it might be able to effectively deal with the rising number of cases because as the system goes, it's actually quite it's quite well thought out, I, I would say. And it's also very convenient for Warwick students, especially. Um, and also second year students, not, not only freshers, second year students as well, as there's no additional charge and you know that there will always be the possibility that you'll be able to get a test rather than having yeah. the large uncertainty of um, finding the test through other means. Yeah. Well, you mentioned, sort of mentioned the rules. Obviously, we see a lot of new rules come in place nationally just for students. Um, one in particular, 10 p.m. curfew has been very you know, controversial. Really, mm -hmm. I want to come to you. What, what are your thoughts on this 10 p.m. curfew? I think, especially when it comes to students, it's basically going to do nothing because people are just going to go. Like, if they're, if they're going to go out, they're just going to go out earlier. It's not going to change anything. And, like, it doesn't stop students from, like, go, like going out. or Not even students. It doesn't stop anyone from going out and, like, like drinking or going to like other households and stuff so I like I just I feel like a lot of the measures that are put in place are put in place so that the government is doing something and they're just not always like I don't know if they're thinking or if they're not thinking but it just seems like they want to look like they're doing something so they put these rules in place. Oh, well surely what the government would say is that they're just trying to react to a fast change situation and doing their best to sort of keep in mind people's civil liberties at the same time. Um, I, I yeah. do think there's another thing to be said about um, how tech, the, this way of going about um, what's it called this way of going about regulation and trying to confront the issue isn't really confronting the issue it's sort of skirting it because if you think about it right alcohol consumption per capita in the United Kingdom is higher than most countries especially among students people are going to consume alcohol people are going to try and you know drink with their friends and what you do by imposing a 10pm curfew or in Scotland saying students they can't go to pubs you're not actually discouraging this from happening what you're doing is people will start drinking in other people's households that's what's gonna happen right people are just at 10 o'clock they're gonna go to the pub till 10 and then at 10 they're gonna say screw it we're going to someone else's house to drink right and um you're gonna see off license stores being massively crowded at 10 p.m i think that's already begun um you're gonna see the tube and public transport filled at 10 p.m that's what's going to happen like you're not really you're not really avoiding the issue here you're just skirting it because people will find ways to get around it and that getting around it is going to be even more dangerous because at least in pubs, you have the whole track and trace system by the NHS in it. Um, but when everybody's sick in public transport at the same time, you don't really have that. You can't really guarantee safety then. If students are going to start going to house parties as an alternative to going to the pub because the pub is shutting earlier, that's less safe as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've already seen change like that happen. Maybe not house parties, but we have seen people in mass gathering outside pubs in in, you know, in places like Oxford in Liverpool and just continuing to drink in groups. And also we've seen sort of, you know, sort of public transport backed up as people ever try to rush home. What do we think about these, these movements? Do we think that it's sort of justified protest against an uh, oppressive law or do we think it's people cruelly ignoring the rules even though they should know better? Um, Cam, I'll come to you. Well, I think certainly there's a sense that these are, um, I was going to say, 
say, I think it's uh, certainly a sense that what there is at the moment is unjustified. And I think clearly that if you look at the cases at the moment, I think there's two things to say. Firstly, when a lot of people are looking at cases rising, there's this scientific sort of consent building between um, starting an open letter last week, which was professors Carl Hennigan, Sinetra Gupta and Carol Sikora. And they published this letter basically saying that we need to be paying more of an attention to hospitalizations and death. Now, yes, obviously there is a risk that we get this lag from people testing positive and then going into hospital normally between a week and two weeks. But one of the things that this shows is you get a much better evidence-based sense. The testing system won't catch every hospitalizations and deaths, you get every single one of them. But you can also start to look at where these measures are starting to, or who is more vulnerable. So the letter points out that you've got 89% of those killed from coronavirus, I believe they're over 80. And 95% of people who've died from coronavirus have had underlying health conditions. So what I think it says is that it's very difficult to justify blanket interventions and that any interventions as necessary are those that need to be pressing the virus and keeping it away from the most vulnerable population. And so I think what a lot of these protesters have been saying is that, well, this is well, this is what is being said, that we are of lower risk. It does, Of course, it doesn't make you immune, but we're of lower risk. And I think it's a reflection as well that society just can't stop. And I've raised the point of students in Scotland and the, being locked up in their halls, for example. For a lot of these students, they work in the economy. They take up second jobs. And for many of them, it provides for them, you know, many have taken up jobs as key workers throughout the pandemic. They've been working in hospitality venues. They've been keeping these venues going. And for the students, it also gives them, you know, it may be their rent payment. It may be the difference between them going out and being able to socialise with their friends. And so I think, obviously, the protesters weren't necessarily going about it the right way. You know, any protest is, is allowed in more than a group of six under the new rules. But obviously, they should have been socially distancing. They should have been wearing face masks. And that in itself was irresponsible. But I think the point they make is one that is legitimate. And I think on a slight aside to that, um, the Wednesday, the Brady Amendment is going through Parliament, which is giving part, which is the renewal of the government's emergency powers. And that will allow Parliament to reclaim control process. And that is going to be a key vote in the House of Commons. Because if Parliament has more of that voice and there's more scrutiny of these measures, um, it will allow for better decision making. Uh, yeah, um, thank you, Cam. Uh, I, okay, I guess I want to bring the story back to students in general. Um, sort of, let's actually let's confront the big issue here, which is Christmas. Um, if the government does say we can't go home for Christmas, who here thinks they're going to follow that ruling? I'm going home. <laughs> I'll stay. I'll stay where I am. I mean, home for me is like 6,000 yeah. miles away, so... <laughs> I've, I've already been told that I yeah. will get driven home regardless, so... I'm not, I'm not going home, uh, because <laughs> of the two-week quarantine rule, we, we have a four-week break and a two-week quarantine, so... And I'd have to quarantine on either side of that break. So it makes no sense to me. So, so do we think that if even if the government did say, "Hey, look, students, for everyone's sake, you can't come home for Christmas. It's going to cause a massive disaster." Do we think that will be um, sort of supported to people to go home? Yeah, people one hundred percent go home. Yeah, they will find a way. Yeah, there's no way they can effectively stop everyone from um, going home. And I feel like, uh, yeah, it's just bad optics if they actually even try and enforce it because obviously people are going to be very mad. So yeah, I, I really don't think it's a realistic possibility at all. Yeah. I mean, it's also a, a military case of that to the, this week in Manchester where students have been put on the self-realization as a community locked up in their rooms um, they're supposed to be supplied with food but many people may they have not been supplied with food and when they put up um, you know signs protesting the government and their response to coronavirus they were told to take them down according to Manchester University at the crest of the police um, do we think I mean firstly let's, what, how, what do you feel about the prospect of a um, university wide accommodation lockdown and how do we think that's going to work do we think that's going to be something successful Rin I'll, I'll come to you I don't see how it's going to work like I, I guess like it would encourage some people to stay in but realistically people like most students at like Warwick at least and like live off campus so you have like second and third years and like master students
students living off campus, how would they possibly be able to manage going, like checking that these people aren't li- leaving their house? Like it's impossible. And also like, it's really hard. Like I had to quarantine uh, when I came back from Bulgaria and like, it was impossible to get, but basically impossible to get like an or like a Sainsbury's online like order of food. It was basically impossible to get one of those time slots. And that was like two, like a month ago, about a month ago. I just do not see how it's plausible that that's even gonna work. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, well, Lily, you're currently in isolation. Even yeah. though you're isolating it for a private accommodation, do you think that's something that can work in a university? Absolutely not. I think people need to understand that um, universities aren't some sort of separate entity that exists outside of towns and cities. Universities are sort of integrated into cities and towns and multiple different cities, multiple different towns from across the region. So it's not going to be easy for any university to just say, okay, you have to stay on this accommodation. You can't do anything else. Not to mention, you know, that are multiple jobs across campus. Many students rely on those jobs on campus. What's going to happen then? Um, It's also, again, and I cannot stress this enough, there are students, right? We're students. We're going to go out. We're going to mingle, right? And it's not it's not necessarily something I'm condoning. I'm not saying, yeah, break, don't follow the guidelines. Of course, try to follow them where you can. But um, I think many people have brought up mental health. And there's a reason that universities and schools have functioned the way they have for so long. If it was easy to take them online, it would have been done it would have been done years ago. But we retain in-person teaching, we retain in-person university because it's about the human element of it, not just the teaching aspect. It's about the life skills you learn, it's about human element behind it, and human contact is a big part of that. Um, so I don't think it's as easy as just saying, okay, the lockdown, you have to follow that. There needs to be other ways to do it. I understand that it's a highly contagious disease. I understand that people with underlying health conditions are massively at risk, but there needs to be, a, there's not going to be an easy solution, but there needs to be a different solution where it's not draconian so as to say that we must stay indoors at all time we can never leave but we need we still need to function as a society we need to find that sort of in between well um so we saw i mean we've seen in manchester that university has been like university security and sometimes the police have been called in to try and keep people inside their rooms do we think this is legitimate do we think this is something that should be allowed um josh i'll come to you well i mean just logistically it just won't work i mean imagine having to call well not just campus security as you put it out the police have been called to do this as well uh, just log- logistically we do not have enough police to enforce that in every single university across the country um, but then just thinking that whether they should be doing that at all, I, I think not. It's, uh, as I said, logistically, it's a waste of time. And also, um, I think in general, um, yes, we're saying, like, sort of idea has been put forward, it's like, oh, yeah, students, they're all going to just go out regardless and they're going to spread the disease in whatever way. I mean, the point I would make is that at the same time, people are sp- still being told to go to work in groups of more than six as if the coronavirus would just ignore the people going to work on a daily basis. So surely by their same logic, the police should be sent to every single workplace to ensure that they're not going near their fellow co-workers it just doesn't sound it just feels like a lot of weight being placed upon the university students whilst everyone else can just go about their normal business i think that if you are going to enforce some form of limitation it has to be a bit more blank instead of weighting it towards the students yeah uh, although you mentioned your motion of work that's reminded me of one of my let's say favorite probably most ag- agree angering news stories i've heard today which is that parliament the parliament um, bars weren't subjected to the curfew so they were serving drinks well past 10 o'clock and even today with the new rules put in place last orders there is 10 o'clock whereas um, every other pub must be completely shut down by 10 so as, as they say one rule for us one rule for them um, we know where dominic cummings has been drinking <laughs> <laughs> 
I should laugh at that uh, neutral. Um, so obviously, we've not only seen people being banned from the houses, we've also been seen that they've been banned from displaying anti-government signs. A sort of message was sent around by the Manchester, Manchester Metropolitan University saying, please take down signs at police request. But I mean, this feels to me like it's a, a flagrant for, you know, free speech violation. Panel, what do you think? I mean, there's no other way of putting it. It's free speech violation. If you're being told, oh, you know, if you're being told to take your signs down, which are saying a certain message, that is free speech violation. And the fact that they have to get permission to put those signs up. There's clearly a form of censorship that'll be put within that, saying that you can't put certain messages up. You can't limit a person's ability to say what's going on is not right. You cannot do that by just the basics of what we have of human rights in this country and across the world. It's just not a way of doing things. It's just clear free, sp- free speech violation. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I suppose... Um, oh, yeah, no, please, what, what, what are you going to say? I, know, I was just saying, I understand it's been a hard situation for the government to handle. Nobody could have seen the pandemic. I mean, it would have been hard to foresee the pandemic, but it's literally their job. This is something they've been elected to do. This is something that we expect them to be able to do. It's okay for me not to be able to foresee in the, the pandemic and then devise a situation that can uh, devise, um, you know, a sort of system that can help protect population. But it's their job. I mean, what have they been doing? Like, what have they had no training in disease control? Have they expected zero outbreaks will ever happen in England? I mean, I don't know. It's like we have every right as human beings to have dissent for our government. We're not saying we're not saying, you know, we're not condoning people actively trying to harm the government, people actively trying to overthrow them. Um, we're still respecting the democracy that has taken place but part of that democracy means that we can criticize our politicians but it almost seems as if they seem that they seem to think they are above the law that you know that they can sort of impose whatever they feel is necessary without you know any sort of thought of the repercussion on common lay people and then they can skirt their own regulation to any to, to benefit them right and then they can tell us not to dissent them in public it's sort of insane isn't it yeah. well you mentioned the government response there and obviously in all the names bastards around this whole conversation one day has been suspiciously absent Gavin Williamson the education secretary um, mm. after the mess up earlier this summer with the A-levels and now this situation do we think it's time for him to go? this is an open question for anyone who yep. yeah I think <laughs> it's time for him to go I think I mean, he lost all his credibility after the A-level scandal and I think there are you know plans for a government reshuffle at some point next year and I imagine that if he is not sacked from the cabinet then he will at least have a different position in the cabinet and I think even to like know that he'll be going in a few months does make his position untenable now because he's lost all credibility all sense of authority and if you're an education secretary you've got a huge budget you're just managing schooling from early years right the way through to university so you need to be someone that can command respect and obviously a level scandal which many people saw coming if this algorithm was going to partially determine grades based on social class i think it is time for him to go you know the policy needs to change as well as the person at the top but i think he's, he's clearly showing that he's not uh, capable and not competent in the role i mean if he doesn't go isn't it a failure of democracy because people weren't people weren't really voting for this when they voted con- when they voted conservative if they voted conservative a lot of people weren't voting for classist education systems I mean I can't speak for all voters but I mean uh, Boris Johnson wasn't standing there saying openly saying like this is what we're going to do nobody the public did not agree to it and it was like you said it was completely foreseeable everybody saw the A-level scandal um, we all knew that algorithm was going on if he's not out you know if he's not out of the 
cabinet or at least put in a different position. How is that not a failure of democracy? I mean, I suppose the government would argue that a year ago, no one was under coronavirus at all. Um, if they suggested doing a national lockdown in their manifesto, I doubt they've gotten more than they've gotten a single vote, let alone um, a winning majority. Um, I, th- I think that takes away from the point, though, is that regardless of even if this is a pandemic situation or not, the education secretary puts in place an algorithm that was class-based for providing grades. Regardless of a pandemic, that is a, that is a, yeah. I, was going to, I was going to swear there in a moment, um, that is a <laughs> screw-up of epic proportions that you should not even have your job for. You should be immediately yeah. removed for that. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you so much for not swearing. because um, I nearly did. I saw myself <laughs> last minute. <laughs> I, I don't need that kind of heat on this show. Um, yeah, well, I think that's the final question of this segment. Um, we, met, yeah, we mentioned the A-level situation, and now with this, do we think this year's freshers are some of the most unlucky ever? Yeah. yeah. 100%. Undoubtedly. Yeah. Well, um, you heard it here, freshers. I hope you're having a lovely welcome week, but you are the most unlucky set freshers we've ever had. <laughs> Um, yeah. uh, well, I just messaged um, a Discord server I'm on, and it's it's um I think work Dota Society, and he just messaged like the, the sad frowny face, and someone was like, "What's wrong?" And he goes, "I'm a first year this year." And that's what, <laughs> yeah, well, well, yeah, what else? What is that, what else is there to say? Um, but that's why you should join. It can only get better. It will. Things can only get better. Donald Trump. Yeah. 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 happier news. Um, Donald Trump's tax woes. Um, from a prince to a pauper, it seems. That Donald Trump is not the billionaire mastermind he made himself out to be. That the only no. paid... <laughs> Yeah. He, only paid, yeah, he only paid $750 in tax the year he was elected and the year, first year of his presidency. Um, it seems Donald Trump had over over three, $300 million in, was $300 in debt, and that's why he wasn't paying any tax for basically the last 15 years. Um, so, panel, I want to come to all of you. For, what's just your first reaction to this story? Honestly, it was just a lack of... I was not really shocked to hear this, considering that he never released his tax, um, his tax, like his, all of his tax audits. Never released them before, even though every president before him had released them as just a sort of formality. And the fact that he was hiding it in, for, throughout this whole time meant that there was something fishy going on, or there was something he was willing to hide from the public. And then when this got revealed, I just wasn't shocked at all, to be honest. Um, is everyone else agree? Yeah, um, uh, yeah. Um, it's almost as if there should be a system where, when you want to run for president, they do this thing where they vet you and they sort of see if you are qualified to be a candidate and not skirting the law or breaking it. I feel like there should be a system in place. Oh wait, there's supposed to be. But no, I don't understand. I know I keep saying this and it's going to be a very common theme in every statement I say. I do not understand how America is a democracy because they're run by a criminal. They are. And nothing nothing can change my mind about that. The fact that this man can stand up there and say that he's running for the people that have not been affected well by continuous policy changes in America, right? He ran uh, for the common man. He ran for people working minimum wage jobs in flyover account, right? That, that was his platform. He said he was running for people that were homeless, right? He was trying to help. He was trying to make a difference. He said he's going to drain the swamp. He is the swamp. And I don't know how people don't see that. I don't understand. He didn't even win popular vote. And he's standing here. I don't understand. I'm out of words to express America. I'm not surprised. I'm not angry. I'm just sort of disappointed. As an American citizen especially, I'm, I'm just sort of disappointed. Well, Nidu, surely if uh, America is a country where a man who earns so little only pays his 175, 775 in tax, surely that is 
the greatest democracy in the world because Trump's <laughs> basically like no money. Yeah, he's he's the most working class man I guess you could have in the country. He's like, paid that less than his income tax. I mean, it just goes to show the hypocrisy, right? Um, his his entire voter base or most of his voter base um are against immigration because they're like, oh, there's no proper background checks for them. You don't know what they've done in the past. Yet fail to vet a man that is not qualified to be president. In my personal opinion. Well, I mean, let's just discuss the story then. So, I mean, obviously we've discussed the headline. $750 is um, in taxing, and, you know, that's a horrifying number. But also, at one point, Trump's, um, Trump's reported, his reported debt was 300 was only, um, sorry for that technical difficulty, his entire income was only um, 78000 for the for that for, I think, one calendar year. Um, how do you think it's going to impact the election? Um, I, I guess it depends on the way that the, um, the opposition or the Democrats sort of spin this story. So there's like a few angles that they could do this and um, the ver- varying le- with varying levels of success and like vote appeal. So if they focus more so on the fact that this guy, he basically didn't pay his tax or he's paid like barely anything in taxes and not necessarily on how much he actually makes, I feel that would be better because if they were, if their main criticism of Trump is that he's, you know, he's not a real billionaire or, you know, he's not actually making millions of dollars, then that feels sort of tone deaf to the average um, voter, especially now when many people are out of work uh, or on, on unemployment but if they hammer home the idea that this is you know the the man in the highest position of power in the country and he's still you know doing some weird stuff with his taxes and he's hiding his tax returns that would be a more successful angle for which to like have any like political um change or like any uh shift in the balance of the election but if the, once again like if they focus mainly on the actual amount and that he's not you know a billionaire as he says or he's not very rich as he says then i feel like that's a missed opportunity on the democrats part uh, well donald trump's always been famous for his political ability to avoid feeling shame for his actions and the way that lets him basically bust any scandal. But the one thing he's always been consistently sort of secret about was his tax returns. And now, of course, we now, we've now seen his tax returns. How do you think this is going to affect Trump's campaign on a sort of personal level? Do, do we think this is going to be the thing that finally makes him throw in the towel almost? Um, no, Ray, I'll come no. to you because you made a face. All right. I just want a reaction. That's... <laughs> he's just, he's so far into this, like, you're saying it's like his political sort of skill to not feel shame. I think it's just his skill in life not to feel shame for anything. So, like, why would he feel shame for this? Like, I don't think he was feeling shame about it in the first place. He was just hiding it because it would be bad if it came out. Like, the thing is, I I genuinely don't think this is going to make a change. Like, he's done so many bad things that, like, people are almost immune to it now. I feel like people are gonna vote, who will vote for him, like, will vote for him. Like, this came out of the New York Times. These people, like, he's been telling them for four years, the New York Times is, like, the worst, just the worst of the worst. Like, they're not, I don't think this is gonna make, like, a difference. If it does make a difference, that would be great. But, like, I I just don't, I've lost, like, the ability to be shocked at anything and, like, it's just it's just sad that it's just like he's just he just does so many things that we've just become so tired of hearing about everything and even though this is huge and it would be like a huge deal if it was anyone else i feel like it's just the next thing if that makes sense yeah. well i suppose um wait sorry someone else did someone else say something i couldn't i uh, know well and i suppose uh, obviously this is not the first major trump tax story we received before the 2016 election a similar story came out about trump's charity foundation which it turned out was of course not a charity foundation but really a sort of very 
complicated money laundering scheme for which Trump bought. At one point, the thing that's famous purchase was he bought up a painting of himself and claimed it was for charity. Um, now that's already didn't have that much effect there. Do, do we think that we might see a similar case here where it just becomes a big story for a couple of days and gets forgotten? Uh, oh, no, Neil, were you going to say something? Yeah, I don't mean, I, I think it, could, it depends, like I said before, it depends on how how big um, of a deal we make this out to be. So obviously it, it kind of is a big deal, but I feel like a lot of his supporters, they probably just don't care. And I feel like they might spin that angle, you know, there are bigger issues to worry about here. Oh, the, you know, especially with all the rioting and massive protests and things like that. So I feel like this might, um, the Republicans might try and sweep this under the um, carpet. And so obviously the other side needs to like press them hard on it. Otherwise, you know, it's going to be a massive wasted opportunity. And um, yeah, I feel like there, there's no point trying to deny anything or claim it's fake news on the Republicans. If they just accept it and, you know, uh, go forward to try and sweep it under the carpet, that, that, that's their strategy, yeah. I guess. That might be how it plays out. Yeah. Can, I, well, yeah, please, yeah. can I just say, I cannot wait for to see the Fox News angle. I was it. just about to say that. <laughs> I'm so excited for that. It's going to be so incredible, cinematographic, just beautiful, <laughs> Oscar-worthy performance. Yeah. Um, uh, I was going to say, um, you can already predict what the response is going to be. CNN is going to talk about it for an entire week. They're going to call it the biggest scandal that's ever happened to America. Fox News is going to minimize it and talk about President Obama and criticize <laughs> him. One America News is going to say it's fake and Trump's going to say that this is absolutely fake and that he earns billions of dollars and that he pays every single dollar in taxes he's owed. But he can't prove it because he's still being audited the last 80 years he's been audited. Uh, well, I, I suppose we now know that he's in fact being audited for stealing 17 million from the IRS. <laughs> so it's probably I mean, Trump wasn't lying he's actually, he's actually come out and said, oh, the IRS does not treat me well. They treat me badly. <laughs> and I'm like, well, welcome to welcome to the real world, Trump, where if you commit some form of tax fraud or tax evasion, the IRS will hound you for it. Um, the, the thing is, you mentioned um, his charity foundation and that scandal that broke in about 2016. Yeah. Um, but not in, literally, I haven't seen a lot of news media talk about the scandal that broke um, earlier this year with another charity foundation involved with Trump. Um, it's not really proven that he was involved with this one, but his son endorsed them. So it's a bit it's a bit hard to see. So um, the We Build the Wall scandal, where they were a charitable organization that were pretending to literally build Donald Trump's wall. And they took donations from people um and essentially like if you paid enough they'd engrave your name on the bricks that they were using and things like that and essentially they were literally just taking the money and keeping it yeah that's that's what they were doing and uh, trump i think don jr was heavily involved in it well, and nobody's yeah. talking about that either i mean yeah trump it was steve bannon was heavily involved steve bannon quit beforehand yeah. and then yeah. that was his next project to, to build the wall on his own um so yeah that was, that was a massive scandal they was they were arrested on a boat and that was yeah. Oh, there were so many boats over the summer in America. Trump had his massive boat parade. Yeah. Steve Bannon was arrested on the boat. I, and, I know, like, the thing is, it's like the propaganda machine that is the USA, who are, I'm certain are going to revoke my citizenship. Uh, <laughs> the thing is, they will sell anything that he does as good, right? Because politics hasn't even become about actions anymore. It's certain. It's just become about the partisans. So Democrats will say this is the worst thing that's ever happened. And Republicans will say it's because of the Democrats. It's their fault. And well, when you force a two-party system and you force like this sort of electoral system, that's all any story is going to become. Nothing he does even matters. Um, well, I mean, I, I hate to put back in here, but we have seen some crossover. Um, the Drudge Report, which is probably one of the most far-right news sources you can find, ran a headline say, calling Trump the fake billionaire and accusing him of defrauding the American people. So oh, clearly wow. the story has had some cut through on the, the more right side of the Republican Party. Okay, maybe there will be more divide amongst the right than yeah. I anticipate, but perhaps that'll only last for a week or two. Yeah. But I just 
just want to address this, um, this comment we've had in, and also everyone, please feel free to send your comments for any story we've discussed today. Um, is this Omar ballot story real? I don't know what you're talking about, so I can't answer that question. Um, thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I, I want yeah, I think I want to just get final thoughts on this for everyone here, and then we'll head on to our final story today, also Trump-related on Supreme Court. Yeah, I thought it was a, a brilliant piece of investigative journalism by the New York Times, you know, managing to get these tax returns after Trump had tried to keep them hidden ever so long. And so even though Trump will decry it as fake news, it is a brilliant piece of journalism. So kudos to all the journalists who managed to look through it and analyse it. Um, but I think this could turn out to be Donald Trump's October moment. We normally hear about at this point in the campaign with five or six weeks until the election that you know there'll be some scandal of both the candidates involved, whoever it is. So in 2016, we saw um, the FBI announcing that they'd reopened the inquiry into Hillary Clinton's emails, and that was seen to really damage her. And also at a similar point, there was a scandal with what uh, Donald Trump said uh, in private about 13 years ago, which I won't, I won't repeat that here. Um, but as other panelists were saying, I don't know whether it will really have any impact on the result. You know, you'll have some of his supporters, not all of them, but some of them who are conspiracy theorists, and so I'll just say it's another example of deep state trying to stop him being re-elected, even though he now is the head of state, um, or, you know, other individuals are saying it's not credible because it's from the New York Times, so I don't know how much cut through it will really have, um, but I think the most important thing is, I was reading bits of the New York Times report, and it's, you know, the sums are just extraordinary, he clearly does have a lot of wealth, you know, it's just where it's distributed to, whether it's in its family, or, um, you know, the sums are just far beyond what most people could aspire to reach up to, and I think the thing it showed me is that what we need to understand is that the richest and wealthiest they don't work for their money they just make their money work for them yeah, yeah. well of course this is not going to be the last drop for the New York Times they've said that there's more stories to come so also, who knows maybe some more damning evidence will come out also I think I know what he means by Omar ballot story uh, Trump uh, is trying to investigate uh, Ilan Omar over because Ilan Omar just won a, an election uh, in the Democratic, primary, yeah. Democratic primary election in Minnesota and Trump believes that um for supporters illegally harvested ballots. So he's trying to launch an investigation. I don't know much about the story, so I cannot comment on its legitimacy. You know what? I just let's just move on. Uh, I'm I'm not talking I'm not gonna engage with this. I we're not doing this today. Supreme <laughs> Court battle. Um, um Ruth, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died very sadly on the 18th of September. Uh, she was a Supreme Court justice, famed for you know her brilliant legal work. But now, of course, the question must turn to who is going to replace her and who has the right to replace her. Now, in 2016, in uh, Obama's last year in office, Republicans refused to allow him to replace the Supreme Court Justice, arguing that this close to an election, it should be up to the next president to decide. Um, now, this year, we're even, we're even closer to the election. Our Republicans are going all seam ahead to bring in Trump's nominee. Um, so, firstly, let, I, I want to hear, what would people's thoughts on Ruth Bader Ginsburg? This is sort of a nice note to end the show on. What would people's thoughts on Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Honestly, um, I, oh, no. Yeah, go no, you go ahead. I'll I'll come in later. Honestly, probably the most recognisable Supreme Court justice that there is in this current generation. If you th if you ask someone to name a Supreme Court justice, they would say Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a true icon of our generation who had been in the Supreme Court for nearly 30 years before her death and was a champion of the uh, liberal side of the Supreme Court and really championed abortion and gay, gay uh, and gay marriage rights. And I think she has left a brilliant um, impact on the Supreme Court and on American politics in her time as a Supreme Court justice. Neil? Yeah, I was I was gonna say something similar. Um, there have yeah, I mean there have also been certain criticisms of uh, RBG as well. I mean obviously her record on you know things like gay marriage and um, Roe v Wade abortion all those things. Th those are obviously very important. There's also um, there are some criticisms to be made, especially about her voting record when it comes to issues of um, Native uh, American people as well. And so I feel like um, people should also be educated on that as well. And uh, yeah, that was just I was gonna play a bit of a devil's advocate. Oh no, that's um. That's 
fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so obviously, very sadly, she's passed on. But I guess the question here is, do you think Trump, under Republicans' own rule from last time, should nominate a new Supreme Court justice? Um, it's their game to do it if they want to. I mean, I think constitutionally, legally, they can do it. And it's just uh, a question of whether they will be civil. Um, and obviously, if, if we've seen anything in the last four years, is that they will do whatever it takes to increase their power. And I feel like that's something that um, the opposition should learn as well. Like, I feel like the, this is the death of civility in politics. And it's just all use all re available resources to get what you want in the end. And I feel like that's the road we're headed down. So, I mean, if they can do it, it for them, it's best that uh, they do it. Obviously, it's not good for um, for many reasons for the rest of us. But like, uh, it's their, uh, if they have the ability to do it, they will do it. And it seems like they can. So, I'm just saying following on from what Neil was saying, um, constitutionally and legally, what the Republicans technically did both times. In 2016, obviously, yes, it's the expectation that the Senate puts will hold the hearing for the Supreme Court nominee. But obviously, Mitch McConnell controls, or the Republicans control the House. Mitch McConnell is kind of the figure here who's very much, he has that kind of Machiavellian kind of style about him. But for Mitch McConnell, the ends will justify the means. And in, in 2016, what, again, it was constitutional, constitutional, though slightly not the most moral, in a sense that obviously there was this convention in place that you would just hold the hearing for the president's nominee. In 2020, you have Republican in the White House and a very high chance as well I, it would be very interesting to see if when you're in a different situation there are where the Republicans were four or five points ahead in the polls. Situation almost like it was at the start of the year when not many people would have predicted the Democrat winning the election this year. But perhaps there's that pressure now and potentially more pressure on the Republican majority in the Senate as well. That's not looking the most comfortable at the moment, especially with coronavirus. So in many ways, this is McConnell really making sure and shoring up his legacy as much as that of the Supreme Court as well. But it, I'd certainly say it's a reflection really of power and just how people will use power because the American constitution is very much game to kind of take power away and it's how someone like a McConnell takes that dance and uses the power they've got and on both occasions Republicans haven't acted unconstitutionally but they've just acted very cleverly very strategically and whatever whatever you say about Mitch McConnell whatever your opinion is it's something you have to look on and reflect on and as just the reflection of power in American, in American politics um, well that's very I mean, if Donald Trump gets to nominate a third Supreme Court Justice and he has nominated someone he has nominated Amy Conan Bar Barrett oh, yeah. um, to take the place of Richard Ginsburg. he'll be he'll, he'll nominate three Supreme Court Justice this time and become one of the most important and influential American presidents of all time um, uh, Amy Conan Barrett is um, she's 48 years old if she lives as long as Richard Ginsburg does she'll be on the court she'll be on the court until 2060 um, so for some long probably longer than Trump's going to be alive so do we um, do we think the Supreme Court as it currently exists a sort of situation where a president can appoint someone to for something 40 plus years and they can influence laws for that time do you think that's something that fits well inside a, you know, a democracy I don't think so at all I think though obviously I've been a very cri massive critic of how democracy functions both in USA and the UK on this show um, so this is probably not a surprise and I will admit I am incredibly biased against Donald Trump um, but when he was elected um, I remember there was a CNN report and he said bottom line is Donald Trump will shape the Supreme Court for death and it was a scary thought then and now that it's 
happening, it's an incredibly scary thought right now. Because I don't think it's fair for the executive to have so much power on the judiciary. I think if you're going to say that your entire foundation of society is built on a separation of church and state, then how how can these elected politicians have such a massive effect on the foundation of the legal system? I don't understand. How can one elected official who didn't even win popular vote, who is supposed to serve for a term of four, possibly eight years, shape a country for 30, 40 years, and in a way that could incredibly harm civil rights. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for all of her flaws, was someone that championed civil rights, especially for members of the LGBT, LGBT community and women, right? Their reproductive rights, all of this. She was a champion. But her tapped replacement, I've forgotten her surname, uh, that Trump is, uh, the Trump is tapping to replace her, is anti-abortion and goes against everything she stood for. The amount of progress that can be undone over the next 30, 40 years because of one man? I don't understand how that's a democracy. Uh, I guess we are now running out of time, so I guess we should final thoughts on this whole Supreme Court issue. Well, I think the most important thing about Supreme Court will almost come on November 3rd. There is controversy over who has won the 2020 election, not least if it's very close. We're hearing all about these mail-in ballots people choosing not to vote at the polling station because of the threat and the pandemic and it's famously in 2000 with um, Al Gore versus George Bush it went up to the Supreme Court who ruled that counting in Florida shouldn't recommence there shouldn't be recounts as that meant George Bush even though he lost the popular vote was able to become president and look how history has turned out so I think actually the role of the Supreme Court though it's very worrying over abortion rights um, in subsequent years actually this November it's where the importance of it could be seen in terms of who wins in 2020 not least if it is extremely close in those key swing states. Yeah, um, that is yeah, that is the key thing to note here. That we're looking at an election that many people think could end up being contested. And, well, uh, something that might be interesting to note is that both Amy Barrett, um, John Roberts, and um, Brett Kavanaugh all served on George Bush's team during the Bush versus Gore uh, race. So, who knows? Well, um, thank you everyone for joining me. It's been an absolutely wonderful panel. It's been great to have you on today. Um, I'm going to begin the conclusion. Um, thank you everyone for watching. It's been absolutely ha wonderful having you all here. Um, I just want to highlight a couple of things. Um, on Thursday, we have a raw welcome meeting. There's a link. To, there's a link to it in the bio, the description of this, you know, video. Please come along, find out more about what we do here in raw, what we do, you know, where you can have your own radio show, come on other radio shows, and essentially just get involved. I'll be there, as you know, you saw our head of training and our program controller, the laws will be there to I'll take any questions you have. And we, um, but also, if you want to get involved in a show like this or come any other raw news podcast, please do join the raw news Facebook group. That's where we do all our advertising. Join that, and then you know, come say hello. We're not, we are friendly, very friendly people um insight will be back but thank you for watching it's been great to have yours and audience today your student radio station on 12 51 a.m this is your role